Dr. Amalia Gonyas Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from the Western Cape in South Africa is Professor Anita Bosch, who is an associate professor at the University of Stellenbosch Business School, South Africa, where she holds the USB research chair dedicated to the study of women at work. Welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for inviting me and good afternoon to the listeners. We're so glad that you're here to join us, uh, particularly looking at unpacking some of the work that you've been doing so diligently for the last 10 years or so on women in the workplace. Yes, I'm very fortunate in the sense that my work has achieved a level of visibility. I think mostly because uh, at the business school, the USB business school, there is a belief that we should be uh, educating responsible leaders. And part of that would obviously be women leaders, but also the everyday woman. And so I was delighted that you introduced the ordinary woman, because a lot of my work is about those individuals that are not necessarily prominent, but go to work or do their work every day and um, want to make a decent living and feel good about themselves whilst doing that. The reality is that so many women do work. Our our world has transformed dramatically. But in spite of that, there's still so many obstacles and missed opportunities because of inequalities. Your work at the University of Stellenbosch Business School has encompassed a, a variety of different factors. If we focus just on the women's aspects, you're an editor of the annual Women's Report, which is in its 10th year of publication which provides evidence-based insights about women's workplace realities. You additionally publish other reports, such as Women on South African Boards, Facts, Fiction and Forward Thinking, and Closing the Gap on Injustice, Addressing the Gender Pay Gap in South Africa, which I, I have to say is always a bugbear. I've never quite been able to fathom how I can be doing the same work as my male counterpart and he gets more pay than me. So to begin with, please, can you tell us more about your role at the University of Stellenbosch's business school and the research chair, which is dedicated to the study of women at work? Yes, the research chair came about uh, because of the university and the business school's commitment to gender equality and to addressing issues of injustice. More specifically, the intersection of women at work, as you rightly point out, is um, quite understudied in a way in, in, in South Africa. Very often, studies are predominantly based on work-family interface, which has a large component of women's uh, type uh, research in that, but not necessarily from a feminist viewpoint. So the research share does take that particular stance, uh, but of interest is that once you start fixing things uh, for women, you actually start seeing a transformed workplace and work experiences for both women and men. And this is an interesting phenomenon that I always aim to also include because um, the work that I do certainly uh, aims to emancipate and help with the emancipation of, of women at work and, and, and greater levels of equality, but it does not intend to oppress men 
in turn, which very often is the narrative that's associated with this type of work and definitely not the case. We once had an interview with former minister Geraldine Fraser Moliketti and she was speaking about this concept of abundance. So it's not a case of the piece of the pie getting smaller as more women come into the workplace, but to think of it as expanding the pie. And I think that's such a great analogy. Yeah, I think it is a great analogy. I think it's a quite quite a difficult sell when our economy is not doing well. And that we certainly know globally at the moment and um, more specifically in South Africa, definitely. Um, and that means that if economic activity slows down, and we've seen this in research, then diversity issues are of the lowest priority items that companies deal with, uh, often just the mere survival of an organization um, becomes the headline issue. However, if we stop looking at this in such an important uh, time, then we continue just to entrench the existing practices. And that exactly is what's uh, stopping us from progressing with gender equality. So it's important to always have this top of mind. And to the analogy of um, enlarging the pie, I think the enlargement of the economic pie is essential also as part of creating more diverse uh, organizations. And, and I think a lot of women are playing a big role in entrepreneurship, more so than what they sometimes find a space in corporate South Africa. Very true. And from the entrepreneur side, it does give people more flexibility. Now, what I wanted to chat to you about is your most recent published report, which looks at women on South African boards. And we do this because Womanity, Women and Unity is a gender-based program, and obviously economic empowerment of women and opportunities to excel are, are very important topics to us on the show. So just to reflect back on some of the data that you reported in the study, you indicated that in 2008, 14.3% of JSE company directors were women. In 2017, that number had transformed to 20.7%. In terms of the composition of women who are on corporate boards, you also indicated that 80% are non-executives, 14% are executives. And if we focus on that point of the 14% of executives, it really shows that there's an absence of women holding senior roles in companies. What are some of your perspectives about improving the number of women in decision-making roles? If we're thinking about increasing the number of women in any workplace by merely plugging and playing, then I think we're making a mistake. Companies that just employ women and think that they don't need to make any other changes are missing the mark completely and are either likely then to employ women who they expect to emulate men or um, in turn will employ a woman and she might leave soon after. And so you have a high turnover rate that reinforces the idea that women can't cope in particular environments. So we really need to start thinking about the larger system and also the structural issues that are embedded in the way in which companies are structured and operated. Now, many people lament and say, well, you know, this is just the way an organization works. So either 
fit in or, or don't be part of the team. But our reality about organizations are that we, as individuals working in the organizations, create the organization. So anything that exists in an organization is created by human beings, and so therefore we can also change it, and we can change some of these ways in which we work. Things like, for instance, extensively long working hours become hugely problematic if any individual, and that would include men as well, have primary care responsibilities. So that's a key issue, and especially now with COVID and the fact that we're working from home and that the boundaries are exceptionally blurred, that exacerbates the problem. So we do need to start, for instance, with having clear boundaries. When is it work time and when is it family time? And it also starts with leaders in organizations, of which many are men at the moment, and for them, for instance, to also take that up um, and to practice that, because as soon as men start practicing these boundaries, then other men feel comfortable to follow suit, and you set a new culture in an organization. Also, things like fast-tracking women early in their careers. If we think about some women that either choose or are able to have children, very often early in their careers, they don't have kids. But then as they approach the 30s, very often they do have children. And that is where a, a watershed moment occurs in many women's lives because the system in which they want to go and work doesn't accommodate that type of lifestyle and the caring uh, of children. So we have to consider perhaps fast-tracking women early in their careers, more so than men, and then once they exit and want to come back, have this idea of on and off ramping for them to not necessarily on ramp then at a much lower level than what they ended off previously. I also think it's quite important to note that when women go, for instance, on maternity, they don't lose their brain and, in fact, gain a lot of other skills that are very useful in the workplace, some of which for logistical planning, I think a lot of people would understand, um, you know, the complexity around that and the skills that you need, even as a person that does primary care of, of children. There's a number of systemic issues that actually need to change. And as I've mentioned before, these issues are really good for any human being in the workplace, not only for women. And in your opinion, which industries or companies are, are getting it right? There's a number of companies that are pretty good at posturing. And so they would have policies that speak to flexibility, purport to say that if you need to go and watch your child and playing sport, please do so, you know, no problem around that. But in the actual application of that policy, there's problems. And for those individuals who do take up the benefits that the policy may bring, there's sort of like an unwritten rule that you might not be as loyal to the company and as productive and focused and all of these other types of traits that we very often want to see in people that work in a, in a particular company. So um, there's a number of industries that would lean themselves more towards, um, for instance, workplace flexibility. And now with COVID, you know, a lot of us have realized, oops, you know, I actually can work from home. Um, the industries that don't help us uh, in terms of this are very often the very male-dominated industries, engineering, construction, and so forth, where you have to be on-site, away from home. And very often that workplace is also far from home. 
And that complicates issues quite substantially then to be good at, at incorporating um, and embracing women and, and potentially the unique needs that they bring, but actually it's the unique needs of any individual that has primary care responsibilities. Thanks for sharing some of your insights about what some of the problems are that are are still pervasive and also looking towards how companies are starting to develop solutions. In government, they have been very forthright in terms of putting through quotas across stratospheres in government. But in the workplace, gender quotas and targets tend to be a controversial issue. But... I would argue almost that sometimes they're a necessity to promote equality and increase the ratio of women in decision-making roles because human behavior, like we've just touched on, is difficult to change and people often tend to revert back to what was familiar, what was comfortable, rather than verging into the unknown. And if it wasn't for legislation, we'd most likely observe the same types of compositions persisting in the workforce. I know that in your study, you had also looked at other countries like Germany and Australia in terms of driving behavioral change. Could you tell us what some of your observations have been? Yes, of of, of great interest is firstly in in South Africa, quotas are regarded as unconstitutional, that we can have voluntary targets. And they seem to be the sort of two types of systems that countries opt for. So Germany, Norway, Spain would be examples of countries that have had legislated quotas. And the difference between a quota and a target is a quota, uh, let's say you say that you want to have 30% representation of women on a board, means that if you cannot find women to fill the 30%, you have to leave that board seat open until you can find uh, a woman. Whereas a target or a voluntary target is you'd have the same target that you're trying to reach, such as, for instance, having 30% women uh, serve on board. But if you absolutely cannot find um, suitable women, then you can fill that with men. Now, you know, clearly that leaves a bit of a a loophole. But the interesting thing is that although Germany um, uh, has been quite successful, in Spain, legislative quotas have not been very successful because the penalties attached to the meeting of these quotas were really not sufficiently powerful to compel companies to adhere to the quota. Uh, They, for instance, linked the attainment to quotas, amongst other issues around um, receiving government contracts and therefore they have to then be compliant. But only about 11% of Spain's um, economy um, at at the stage when when these studies were done was reliant on government contracts. So clearly that's not a huge penalty uh, that kind of deters companies from not meeting um, the requirements. In Norway, uh, there was at uh, one stage a 40% voluntary compliance, and then it moved to mandatory when quotas were not met. Whereas Australia and the UK have gone the route of voluntary targets, but the interesting mechanism that they use to ensure that there is compliance on these is the use of the media. And um, in Australia, there's a monthly monitoring of the meeting of these targets and very strong media coverage on it. And so it seems as though um, companies are 
really concerned with their reputational damage and potential brand damage, and so therefore would adhere to voluntary targets if they know that they are being monitored. That's so interesting that it's the reputational damage rather than the punitive damage of paying a fine that is being the trigger. So it's going on with more of that emotive aspect on human behavior. Yes, absolutely. And um, a lot of companies very often see the financial um, penalties, uh, you know, depending on the size of the financial penalty, as sort of a minor issue. They, They view it perhaps as a type of a social tax, in a sense, to pay. But as soon as we have greater levels of transparency, which is what my pay gap work is also about, then we see companies moving towards doing the right thing because they know that they are being watched. And also in that process, although they espouse particular things, they may not be living it. And that will be unveiled if the media gets hold of it. So that really seems to be a very, very strong deterrent and a very good ally in terms of seeing particular levels of equality rise. Looking at some of the mechanisms to try to promote more representation of women, whether it is through quotas or through voluntary targets, from a South African perspective, we have a lot of enabling legislation. And in fact, we're really well known for our legislation. How do you think existing legislation can be used to promote more representation of women on boards? You know, you're absolutely right. I mean, we have a plethora of different acts um, that uh, that are really quite progressive. Unfortunately, these acts are not really uh, tied in together really nicely in terms of a particular framework driving a particular goal. What we can say at the moment is that, for instance, in the, the Companies Act, Uh, reporting of gender equality in general or gender equality on boards becomes mandatory as part of um, annual reports, that would be a huge step um, forward. The JSE has already in their listing uh, requirements King 4's stipulations, and so that's mandatory for all uh, Johannesburg um, Securities Exchange uh, listed companies. And in turn, King asks for uh, responsibility around gender equality. The King Codes of Governance, firstly, are voluntary. Uh, Companies are not, um, you know, mandated to fulfill the requirements, except if they're listed on the JSE. Um, And so another thing is tweaking King and making it slightly more specific, which may sound counterintuitive because King is written with the idea of being voluntary, but I do think that the recommendations around King can be made much more specific to give guidelines. Because also as researchers, when we do research um, on this, and, and you know, for instance, this particular public report, which is available for free download from the USB's website, was sponsored by a women-owned company. And so if we think about the research that we want to do around this, we have to have data and comparable data at that. Um, and so I think, for instance, those two mechanisms can be used very fruitfully to help us to get greater levels of transparency. There's also um, an interesting mechanism that's used, at least for pay equality in in Australia, 
There they have the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. That's a separate unit that just looks at workplace equality because at the moment our Employment Equity Act, uh, but it doesn't cover uh, for non-executive directors who are not employees of a company. The BEE Act looks specifically just at black women. And so there's a few gaps that I do think the Companies Act and tightening of King's recommendations can definitely start addressing. If I recall, I think around about 2013, there was the Women's Equality, the, the Wedgie Bill, and that seemed to have fallen through. Do you think that this is an opportunity to revive something like that? Yes, I, I definitely do think so. There's been all kinds of movements. I um, w- was part of giving input to the Women Charter Review uh, that was done in, in, in Parliament. That is a you know a, a very broad uh, policy intent document, and certainly because of that, there's been talk about reviving the gender equality bill. The reality is also again that we have a number of mechanisms in South Africa: the Commission for Gender Equality, the uh, Commission for Employment Equity, the BEE Commission, and a number of others, and the role overlap. Because if we talk about gender in the binary, which is what we're talking about at the moment, the overlap with women's issues fall under each one of those commissions. So the question is, where should the primary focus lie? And I think that is another issue that we we should be debating, because that would also help uh, eventually in putting together appropriate legislation. Again, I think that should be tested for unintended consequences and be done in a thoughtful and mindful way, of which there are many, many researchers at the South African universities that can give excellent um, feedback, economic analyses, uh, various types of studies from different disciplines so that we get to a point of really putting something together that is useful and appropriate for our African context and not just sort of thought of and grabbed from elsewhere. So there's a strategic focus to the work that's being done, that it is managed in some type of umbrella organization, can collect comparative data so that we can identify trends of where things are going, where they're regressing potentially, and look at opportunities of of driving a, a concentrated agenda. Yes, absolutely, because like we spoke about, earlier on about the media attention and awareness is um, you have to attach numbers and monitor these and make it known, make it known how well we are doing or how poorly perhaps we are faring in particular areas. And those things have to be collected somewhere centrally. For instance, we need access to the companies and intellectual property commissions data sets but to get through to the right people, to know who to make contact with, and then to start collaborating, that's another issue. So we have to start thinking about how do we systemically look at the issue of gender equality, um, and then more specifically, the portion that you and I are speaking about today, about women at work, a women's economic participation, also there. You know, what are the different bodies that can play into strengthening that 
and what is the role clarification and sort of boundary spanning of these types of units, um, you know, and who ultimately needs to take responsibility for enforcing. Because what I've seen in, in the research across the globe is you can have fantastic policies, great legislation, but if you don't have sufficient penalties in place to enforce and penalties that matter to the different constituents, then you really actually have nothing. So it has to be a full system. And I think then, um, as we've seen in South Africa in general with our democracy and keeping it healthy, is very, very solid public participation and the participation also of the not-for-profit sector and, and activists. With the not-for-profits applying the pressure and lobbying to make sure that things stay on track. Today, we're talking to Professor Anita Bosch, who is an associate professor at the University of Stellenbosch Business School, South Africa, where she holds the USB research chair dedicated to the study of women at work. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Prof Bosch, we've spoken about several elements today, um, particularly focusing on women at work, but women on boards. And the reason that we've looked at this is because if you get people at the top, hopefully that there will be an endorsement, an influencing effect on what happens in the rest of the organization. And in discussing your research and experiences, what do you think needs to be done to accelerate the rate of change to ultimately increase representation of women on boards? Clearly, I think there is a, you know, a case to be made um, for the, the tweaking of the, the Companies Act and to make it much more specific to uh, the, the formal reporting and annual report of gender equality across the, the spectrum throughout organizations so at every level. Uh, that's the first part. The King Code, the King, King Code for Governance, that also most definitely uh, needs to be adapted. I think that there is space um, for a consolidation of a lot of the laws that we have and a debate about the usefulness of different parts of it um, and then to see to it that, that we get uh, the right agencies with sufficient resources to address these issues. And then the last bit would be media attention. But in saying that, there's also a lot that companies can do. And uh, firstly, let's just get one of the myths out of the way. There are enough educated women, in other words, women educated in the right fields. Um, if we look at the latest statistics, in fact, there are more women graduating also with science um, and technology degrees than men. Women are making very good progress and are graduating. And in all other fields, there are more women graduating than men. So we no longer have an issue of women um, per se not having the right levels of education. We are, however, seeing that once they exit the um, higher education system, they're not necessarily getting the same uh, opportunities. The part that organizations need to do if they truly are interested in gender equality is to apply themselves to those issues and to start observing what happens in companies and at which point women exit. The early career fast-tracking of women and giving them lots of opportunity to lead and to work on quite complex projects, 
that is essential um, and that would remain uh, a very important driver. The acknowledgement that when women may um, slow down slightly perhaps under certain circumstances during childbearing years, um, you know, that also has to be looked at in terms of a, a normalizing of that. And so, uh, you know, in terms of ensuring that we have that level of equality to say, well, okay, if the one person does um, take time off to have children and perhaps to care for them, what is it that we could do in organizations to start pulling them back in again? So it would be those reduced hours, but being very mindful of not overloading a woman in terms of, um, and, and you know, this happens very often, that she may take reduced hours of work, but then actually work the same workload as what she would have worked for a full day and end up with a half day salary. Um, and that's where, you know, the pay gap might, might enter into it. One of the mechanisms to use is gender-based budgeting. So if you're employing women, you should accept that they are likely to fall pregnant and you actually have to budget for that. And so some people would say, well, that just pushes up the costs of companies. But then our reality is we'll never have women in organizations. So gender-based budgeting is a very important concept that I think is starting to get traction and at least is being noticed um, internationally as, as a way for us to do that. In terms of women on boards, very specifically, we have to consider for companies to look outside of the traditional networks where they usually find other board members. And so it may be looking into NGOs, looking into academia, other spaces where perhaps before companies have not really mined their networks and to mind the issue that you would really ideally like to appoint at least three women or 30% of women um, on, onto your board, depending on the size of the board, to really start traction coming through in, in terms of them being accepted and having voice on a board. Thanks for all those insights on looking at women on boards and what we need to do to advance that particular agenda. Turning towards more of a personal perspective, one of the questions that I ask all my guests who've made significant contributions in their respective disciplines is about some of the factors that they consider have been pivotal to their success. So if you could share with us, in your opinion, what would you say have been some of the key drivers to your success? This is a lovely question, and um, there's a few things that come to mind. The first being the ability to ask for help from the best person that I know I can get hold of about a particular issue. You know, that has really, really helped me throughout my life is to acknowledge when I really do need help and then to ask, or just when I don't know about something, and to really try and reach out to the best uh, person that, I, that I'm aware of that can help me. I think the other thing is um, being willing to go the extra mile. That definitely is a key feature of, of who I am and, and how I've been raised. Then also harnessing a diversity of um, opinions and not being afraid of opinions that are different to what you may hold and to consider those and um, actually to thrive in, in such an environment because usually that brings about a much better solution than what you might have been able to think of yourself. 
And then the last thing, which I say in a lot of humility, is to say, I'm sorry when I've erred, uh, which does happen quite often. And then just to stop to reflect and, and then to say sorry and, and, and to make good on, on, on you know, where, you've, where you've erred. Every time we ask this question, everyone has a different answer. So it's, it's wonderful to build up this collective and knowing that people have got different triggers. And in your life growing up, what would you say have been some of the important moments? What influenced you? I think depending on what topic you're looking at, there will be different triggers. But there's a few key moments. The one was when I was in grade one that I can remember very specifically about um, inviting a young girl into my um, school class whose dad was a road construction worker. And she was moving along with her family along the, the N1 uh, Western Bypass while they were building this. This was many years ago. And she uh, came into our class and she was so anxious and so hungry and so uh, unkept. And I remember my mom saying for a period of time she couldn't understand because I, I went home and I was ravenous. And um, then later on she figured out that I gave my lunch to this child every day. But that was a, a key moment that I remember up until today about the vulnerability that we have as human beings and that we carry with us, as well as our ability to be able to help each other and reach out in ways that make it easy for you actually to reach out. It's, it's no skin off your nose to help. Um, I also think today I realized that my father was also vulnerable and that men can be very vulnerable. And his ability to say sorry when he's erred and to again take note of that vulnerability and that vulnerability is not the same as being weak. And that distinction um, is very um, clear, clear for me. I'd say that um, those, as well as perhaps the last one, is my realization that in an unjust system, things can turn toxic very fast when people feel that they're not being heard because there's very often these sort of, what uh, you call them survivors, that hijack a leadership vacuum, but they actually hijack it to further their own personal needs. And so for, for leaders of organizations to be very mindful of, of listening to people um, so that they don't feel unheard uh, and not to leave a leadership vacuum uh, for other agendas to take over and become quite toxic. Those are very valuable points of advice. As we're a gender-based program, one of the core questions that I always have to ask is, who have been some of the strong women in your life? I definitely can say my mother. She is an incredible woman with an incredible work ethic and, you know, also at the same time, very caring. So at different times in our lives, um, she's obviously fulfilled different roles. Uh, she continues to work until this day. Um, and so she has definitely played a major role in my life. The other women that really come to mind are people that have helped me and um, they are domestic workers. So uh, Mrs. Doris Oliphant, Mrs. Francina Madiba, these are women in my life that have made a tremendous difference, you know, and that I have the greatest level of respect for and form part of my drive uh, for equality 
to bring the everyday woman in, into the fold and to, into the view of work. And so not just women on board, but these women that every day just do what they need to do to put supper on the table and to care for people in a very loving way um, such that we create a better society at, at the end of the day. That's a, a wonderful reflection on some of the women who have been such a, a, a strong part, a solid part of your life. And lastly, as we close out the conversation today, could you share a few words of inspiration that you'd like to share with young women that are listening to us on the continent? Yes, I, I want to say to young women, be mindful of your energy because you have a lot of it and it's so fantastic when you, when you see the energy of young women. Don't waste it on unnecessary issues. Um, expect to be challenged. Um, expect to make, make mistakes, but also expect to be helped along the way. Uh, never be too proud to ask for help. And I think the last bit that I'd like to leave uh, people with is the idea that recently has really set in for me is to prepare for a marathon, not a sprint. Um, and uh, coming back to the issue of, of women and young women's energy is to consider your energy in terms of a marathon and not necessarily a sprint. Thank you for those wonderful words of motivation. It's been great having you on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. It's, uh, it's been a great pleasure. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Professor Anita Bosch, who is an associate professor at the University of Stellenbosch Business School, South Africa, where she holds the USB research chair dedicated to the study of women at work. During our conversation, we mentioned a few of the reports that Professor Bosch has been working on specifically related to women, whether that is regarding women on boards or women in everyday work. Some of these reports can be found at www.usb.ac.za and alternatively, www.womansreport.africa.